Hi, I'm Kate Montague. And I'm Jess Binnes. And you're listening to the Audio Craft Podcast, a series of sessions from our 2018 festival, recorded on the day by ABC RN. In this session, our international guests, Jesse Baker and Colin Campbell, encourage us to think big. These two master storytellers show you how to structure a killer long-form podcast series. Colin Campbell is the co-creator of some really successful US podcasts like The Takeaway, Freakonomics Radio and The Frame. His works appeared on NPR news programs, WNYC, The World and Marketplace. Now Colin's an executive producer for original content at Audible, where he creates new on-demand programs and podcasts like Sincerely X and Ponzi Supernova. He works with Jesse Baker, who's the Vice President of Original Audio Content for Audible. Last year, we all became addicted to the Fly on the Wall Therapy podcast, Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel, which Jesse is an executive producer on. She also EP'd Audible's true crime thriller, West Cork. Before joining Audible, Jesse was the executive producer and co-creator of NPR's Ask Me Another and worked on NPR shows like The Weekend Edition Sunday, Day to Day and All Things Considered. That's just a taste of what these creators have achieved over the years. And in this episode you're about to hear, they bring together all their wisdom for the opening talk of the Audiocraft Festival. Good morning. I'll try not to screw this up. And if I do, I was told most of you are Australian and you'll be nice to us anyway. Uh, So thank you for that introduction. World leaders, whoa. Um, So I am Jesse Baker, this is Colin Campbell, and today we are going to spend the next 25 minutes together talking about big ideas. This is a graphic representation of all the marketing logos of the places that we have worked. Kate just did a great job and Jess did a great job of going through kind of the places where Colin and I have spent the last decade of our careers. Uh, We have actually known each other for 10 years. You make great, great friends in radio. Just attracts really wonderful people. It's a wonderful community, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, So the point of this slide is to tell you that we come from a culture that is really rich in storytelling, that it it is a world leader in public radio, in telling you the news of the day, and also in a really sound, rich, wonderful way. It also comes with a rigid set of rules. These people have been telling stories for decades. They know how long it should be, how short it should be, how it should start, how you should write in and out of tape. Um, And you grow up kind of learning those, either listening to the radio or writing for radio or working in newsrooms. And this long-form podcast thing that's happening right now, I'm not going to say there aren't rules. I'm just saying you get to decide when to break, borrow, slightly bend, or completely redefine the rules for your shows. And so that is what we have been obsessed about for the last couple of years. This is kind of the thesis of what we want to talk about for the next few minutes. You will do your most creative work by figuring out which rules you're going to break. Breaking the rules is scary and really fun. So these last four shows have been um, our obsession, the things that got us out of bed in the morning, the things that we went to bed thinking about. And there have been so, so many problems and issues with them that that is for a drink later at the bar. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about the things that we felt like we actually solved, some questions that we asked ourselves as we went through these long-form projects and kind of the answers that we found and how we landed on them. Uh, The first show we're going to start with today is The Butterfly Effect. So The Butterfly Effect uh, is hosted by the author John Ronson, if you haven't uh, had a chance to listen to it. It's a wonderful piece of work. 
Um, but when it came to us, it was a really simple pitch. Um, it's a story about a tech company in Montreal uh, that had given the world what it wanted, right? For those who don't know what the world wants is free porn, right? <laughs> so this company was called Pornhub, and John wanted to know um, what had happened there, particularly in the world of paid porn. And, and I come from Los Angeles. There are a lot of actors who work in paid porn in the San Fernando Valley in California. And so he wanted to tell the story of, of particularly how things had changed there. So one of the first questions we had was sort of, um, how do we know this is a series, right? How is this not a simple story? Um, we certainly trust someone like John Ronson to go chase it. Um, but how did we know when he came back from the first glance uh, that we had something? So uh, here's John Ronson. Have you ever thought about the kind of butterfly effect? Because obviously when, when Pornhub became so huge in the late 2000s, there must have then been a, a butterfly effect that would then engulf the existing porn world in the San Fernando Valley. Did, did you ever think about that stuff? A lot of people in the industry made less money, there's no question. I do not know how many companies closed. I'm sure many did. To be honest, I, there's, there's, it's hard for me to say what else there might have been. I, I have talked to a lot of people, and I know that a lot of people are upset about uh, how this all developed and how it is continuing today. Right. But uh, yeah, So the I, main thing was the kind of movement of money, I guess, from the San yes. Fernando Valley up to Montreal. Yes. <laughs> yes, you could say that. that. That was definitely the biggest change. Yes. You know, how, how do you feel about me going down into the San Fernando Valley and trying to find out what the real butterfly effect is? And, and would you be curious? Yes, uh, I, of course it would be interesting. I thought I'd be going to the San Fernando Valley to tell some kind of financial story. But as my months there progress, a different story emerges. Something sad and funny, but also warm and strangely beautiful. Warm and strangely beautiful, right? But this is, this is, of course, a great sign, right? If you get into your story that you thought would be sort of simple and you come away with it with this enormous pile of questions to the point uh, that you're asking the people in, in your story, the sources in your story, would you, would you be curious about that? And the people who are in your story, the characters who are players in it are saying, I would love to know the answer to that. I'm after that. Um, and some people have used this technique, of course, to great effect, right? To, to stretch things out as episodes, organized by some of those questions and some of those locations you go looking for things, uh, and using the first episode in particular to get buy-in from the audience to do that, right? To say in the first, in the first thing here, what we're going to do is sort of, sort of find our way here, and if you're engaged at that point, you trust me to go tell it, you'll follow me across all the rest of the, the questions. So that was, that was one of the first revelations for us, is that this simple story quickly became a series when we realized that we had uh, a chance to, to just take a pile of questions and go answer that across a series of episodes. West Cork, uh, I spent two years of my life working on this. The producers, reporters who reported this out spent three years, and God knows if we hadn't just put a pin in it, they'd still be out there working the story. Um, it's a 13-part murder mystery we don't solve it at the end, so if you haven't heard it, I'm not ruining anything for you as I go through some of this. Um, but it's a, about a 22-year-old murder, a woman, French woman named Sophie Toscan de Plantier, who travels to the western, eastern, some coast of Ireland, I don't know, I can't remember, um, to her holiday home a couple days before Christmas, doesn't tell her husband or her son really where she's going, and um, she's found 
savagely murdered at the bottom of her driveway. It's a very small town. 600 people live there. It's a vacation town. So chances are it's your neighbor or your bartender or the guy you buy cheese fish from at the fish market. You probably know who did this, and everyone in the town was convinced they knew who did it. The story, they, they came to us a year in, and they had done many, many, many dozens of interviews. And we kind of had an idea of how the story was going to be laid out. 13 parts is a super ambitious task, I think. 10 is the perfect number. Actually, 6. If you're doing a true crime series, 6 is great. <laughs> 8 is livable, 10 is long, and 13 is impossible. I learned that the hard way. But with this, they knew that they were going to tell this in a sort of linear manner, but we kept getting stuck in the beginning of the very first episode. We knew episode two was going to be Sophie and her murder, but the first episode, you needed to understand this town of West Cork, and you needed to know who the people were and the culture of blow-ins, which are people who come from out of town. Um, but we were really, really stumbling on how does this begin, how does this begin? And after a couple of months and wasted hours and episodes, we decided to screw it. Don't start with the first episode. We wrote two through 12, and then we went back and wrote the beginning. So I'm actually going to play you the last minute or so of West Cork, and I, I'm not ruining it for you. Please, please go listen, because it, it is a great listen. Um, so I'm not ruining it, but go ahead. We did see Pierre-Louis one last time, last summer, at O'Sullivan's pub in Crookhaven. O'Sullivan's was Sophie's favourite pub in West Cork. She came here that Sunday before she was murdered and chatted as usual to the owner, Billy O'Sullivan, the way her son and his family were doing now. Hello. What's your name? Aurelia. Aurelia, that's a lovely name. Isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> your name? Sophie. Sophie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say hello, Sophie. Hello. <laughs> My name is Bill. I'm Bill. You, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen It is, you. it is, it is. Pierre-Louis remembers meeting Billy here as a 14-year-old on a trip with his mum. While his kids drank hot chocolate, Pierre-Louis and Billy caught up. They talked golf and fishing. Billy gave Pierre-Louis a lobster he caught earlier that day for the barbecue and they agreed to meet up next summer and go out fishing together on Billy's boat. So, OK, next time. Next, next time. year. But if, I will call you, if, huh? if I'm alive, I'll be eating Oh, then. If you're not alive, I've been waiting for that for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so it does go on. There is another little two minutes after this, but the point of that clip was two things. First, it gave us a location. It ends in this pub, which was the very last place that Sophie was seen before she went home that night and was murdered. Uh, when we decided that this is the ending, this was just the physical location of where it should end, it sort of unlocked the beginning for me. It was like solving a puzzle that I didn't know I was trying to solve through these last 13 episodes. The other thing about this ending, which I think you can get even totally out of context, knowing none of the players, not, not being involved in it at all, uh, is a feeling of rebirth. They're starting from the place where Sophie ended, and that she, this man who was Sophie's son takes his children, and they're meeting with the, the man who owns the pub, who's quite a character, Billy. And there is this healing. Uh, this, it, it ends optimistically. So it's so important to understand that and to kind of echo that at the beginning. So I will play you now 
kind of the, the very first minute of West Cork, um, which also starts, uh, this time it's Sam and Jen, the reporters, knocking on the door, calling the owner of the pub, saying, could you come down, could you talk to me? So it's the first time they meet Billy. You might not be home yet. Is that Hello, is that Billy O'Sullivan? That's right. Hi, Billy. Uh, my name is Jennifer, and I am a radio reporter, and I'm here with my husband, and we're doing a piece on the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder. We're here for a few days, and we just wanted to come in... Two days before Christmas, 1996, a French woman was murdered in a remote part of West Cork on the southwest coast of Ireland. She'd been badly beaten and was found in her nightclothes and laced-up boots tangled in briars and barbed wire by the path below her holiday home. To the police, it looked like she'd been running from someone, and this was as far as she got. There were no witnesses, no forensics, no clear motive. Down an isolated lane, there was just the body of a woman that people knew little about. On the night that she died, Sophie stopped by O'Sullivan's pub in the small village of Crookhaven. Billy O'Sullivan was behind the bar, and he was the last known person to see her alive. If I knew she was going to be murdered, I would have remembered everything, like. In West Cork, it's simply known as the murder because there hasn't been another murder that anyone can remember. 20 years on, the case is still open. I think for the woman's soul, for the family... For family. You know? It's like the casket can't be closed. So, to know the beginning... Often it's helpful to know the end, but if there's a story that doesn't have an ending, how do you figure out what that ending is? And I will steal something that Brian Reed told me when I sent him a couple of episodes. Brian Reed is the, this American Life producer who made S-Town. Uh, I sent him this and I said, how did you know when you were done reporting S-Town? And he said, um, when I knew more about the story than the people I was interviewing. And that was exactly where Sam and Jen were. You know, they, they were like telling their sources things that they didn't know. And it was like, okay, it's time to pack it up and go home. Um, so about a year and a half ago, I started working on a project with ProPublica, which uh, in the US is a very serious uh, group of investigative reporters. They've won the Pulitzer Prize many times in the US. Um, they're very serious, starched shirt, stuffy reporter people. Uh, I admire many of them. Uh, I was really excited for the chance to work with them. I've worked in newsrooms a lot in my life, and they had this incredible story. Um, they had the story of how a, a massacre in Mexico that was reported as drug cartel violence, uh, their reporting was actually showing that it was caused by America. It was caused by U.S. officials who had botched an operation uh, and led to the deaths of, of uh, dozens of people. Uh, we were the only ones who had it, uh, and I was just diving into it. We were rushing through all the reporting and, and trying to sort out how we would tell it. Um, and we had all these interviews uh, with people inside drug cartels. We had people who were in the US who had been hiding from some of these cartels. Um, and a lot of our sources were skittish about recording. A lot of our interviews were in Spanish. Um, and as I started to get into the tape, I realized I had a, a really, really big problem, which is um, this group of people were the only people who knew the truth, this really exclusive group of people. Um, they were the only people who knew the story, uh, and they sucked at telling it. They were really bad at telling their own story. A lot of the tape we would have to translate and voice over, uh, which is a problem that I think many of us have had to deal with. 
Um, and we had people who just weren't great at sort of telling you what had really happened to them, even though it was incredibly dramatic. So when you're working on a big story or a big series, uh, you have to decide where to spend your time. Um, you can't bring every scene to life. You can't cover every plot point equally. And so I had kind of a, an insight that, that carried me through and that helped me a lot, which is that I, I, I just laid out the series and I sort of decided where I was going to invest. Um, and, and the insight for me was to not do that exclusively based on my tape. I had all this tape that was difficult to use to work with, um, a lot of stuff that just wasn't going to sing no matter what I did with it. And so I, I started to lean on some of the other elements that we were going to use, to lean on my sound design, to think about how we would create kind of sense memories that would bring some of these stories to life. Um, so I picked where I would make my investment, and I picked that across uh, five episodes. I picked 14 scenes that we were really going to score and put, put an effort into. And I'm just going to play you a before and after of one of those scenes. Um, our main character was this uh, cocaine dealer named Jose. Uh, Jose was on the run. The Americans were chasing him. Uh, the cops wanted him to cooperate. Jose uh, had these very powerful bosses in Mexico. So they went to his house, uh, and his house was full of phones. It was full of drug paraphernalia. Uh, his wife and his mom were kind of connected to this house, and so they were threatening to arrest his wife. And so here's a taste of what it's like to hear Jose tell us that story uh, on the original tape. My wife calls me. She tells me, the house is surrounded. I said, what do you mean it's surrounded? She goes, yeah, there's a lot of cops outside. I said, well, listen, they're probably going to arrest you. Just try to relax. We'll get you out on bond. I said, bring the phones. We had toilets in our house that were flushed real strong. Flushed the phones down the toilet. And Rachel wanted to talk to me. I said, what's going on, Mr. Martinez? He had my wife there, I guess. She was listening. He said, if you don't decide to cooperate, I'm going to arrest your wife. I said, well, I already told you I'm not cooperating. And I told a man, do whatever the hell you got to do. And I hung up the phone. So I'm a, I'm a married man, uh, and I just often think about what it would be like if I called my wife and said, look, be calm, they're probably going to arrest you, but we'll, we'll get you out on bail. It's, it's going to be totally fine. Um, you know, this is a huge moment. After this, um, Jose decides to cooperate with the DEA. He goes against the cartel, who are his bosses. Um, he knows what's going to happen to this. He knows what, how his bosses behave. And of course, Jose's kind of a mumbler, right? You, can, you can't really hear him, right? He's in uh, protection. It was hard to get in touch with him, hard to get him to sit down. We weren't going to get a whole lot of interviews with him. Um, and so it, it was just kind of flat, right? This moment that changed his life, that changed the lives of, of all these people in Mexico came across really flat. And so this was one of the scenes I picked. And I just thought, we're going to go for this. We're going to try and talk this starchy journalistic organization into buying this. Um, we're going to let loose with the sound design and try and make this a, a moment you recognize as being an important moment for Jose. So here's how we did that. My wife calls me. You're everywhere, Jose. What is going on? She tells me the house is surrounded. So what do you mean it's surrounded? She goes, yeah, there's a lot of cops outside. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, listen, they're probably going to arrest you. What? Just try to relax. We'll get you out on bond. What do I I said, break the phones. We had toilets in our house that were flushed real strong. Flush the phones down the toilet. Richard wanted to talk to me. That's what was going on, Mr. Martinez. He and my wife there, I guess. She was listening. He said, if you don't decide to cooperate, I'm going to arrest your wife. I said, well, I already told you I'm not cooperating. But I thought he was just bluffing. And I told him, man, do whatever the hell you got to do. And I hung up the phone. So we had a lot of fun. I took this back to the, the editors of these reporters, and to be honest with you, they loved it. 
They were really happy. They saw the excitement. They saw the chance to bring the story to a wide audience and be really engaged with it. Um, and I think that's my takeaway that, that I hope I can, I can deliver to you today is, is just to, to take that risk and to know that one of the joys of the moment that we have with this audience that we have is that they want us to take that risk. They're going to let you take that risk in the way if you're working for a big news program or if you're working in another context, you wouldn't be able to. So don't let yourself be limited by people who aren't, telling, uh, aren't great at telling their own stories or by bad tape. Um, take that chance, engage this audience that's going to give you that permission and, and see where it leads you. Esther Perel. Uh, I could give a master class on Esther Perel. I love talking about her. She's changed my life personally, and I knew sitting with her that she would change other people's too, because she is truly special. But really what I'm going to talk about, if I just could pick one point about Esther Perel today, is the idea of making characters, and in this case, um, people who come in for therapy, relatable. Uh, on the surface, if you were to read an episode description of, of any of the couples in this season, uh, you, um, you wouldn't think you had their problems. I mean, maybe a few of you would, but you would read you know, a, a two-sentence description and you would say, well, my husband's not a sex addict and he hasn't been cheating on me for 25 years and that's not my life and why would I listen to this? And then you get into it and you're suddenly like, oh my God, this, this is my life. And Esther's talking to me and you forget that really... Um, what she's doing is trying to un, un, kind of give someone a new story. Uh, so I should tell you, if you haven't listened to this, that Esther Perel is a therapist, a very special kind of therapist. We call her a sex therapist, but she actually is a family therapist, couples therapist. Um, and couples apply. These are not her clients. They apply to come in and sit with her. It's a one-time session. She's never met them before, and we record for three hours. Um, we mic them up, you might think it sounds a little like a reality show, it isn't. But they sit in her, her office, we close the door, and I think five minutes in they forget they're being recorded because they're so invested in what's happening and the story that they're telling and really trying to come out with a different story than the one they came in with. And so we were kind of stuck with, as we think about this, how do we make these people relatable to you? If, if you're going to give this podcast as you listen to it, maybe a minute, maybe 40 seconds. Uh, what do I do with the beginning of each episode that makes you, the listener, interested and invested in a couple? And how do I do that with actually some pretty shitty tape? Um, to kind of play off what Colin said before, uh, we do these pre-interviews where people, the producer, myself, will, will call them on the phone and we'll talk to them. And these are the most vulnerable, intimate conversations you will ever have with a stranger because five minutes in you're asking them about their sex life and like things that I would not even ask my best friend I'm asking people on the phone and they're answering these questions and they aren't getting offended uh, because they want help they, they want to be able to sit with us there and so they're willing to just tell the truth and so you have these raw intimate moments that are so relatable and so vulnerable and sound actually very different than the sessions themselves. So I will play one, uh, which is actually from the first episode from the first season, to kind of give you a taste of how we construct uh, each episode to make those people come to life and make them more than just one-dimensional. We've been married for 11 years, and we have three little children, and we built a great life for ourselves. Then everything kind of fell apart because of what he did. 
I was unfaithful to her for over a year. She found out about that, not by just like me coming clean, but actually kind of finding out about it. Part of my anger is coming from that I feel like I've done a lot for him. Changed my religion for him. My wife is Russian Orthodox. I'm a Muslim American. We come from very different backgrounds. But I went for him, you know, and at the end he turns around and does this. I think I need to show my partner that she could trust me again. But I also personally need to feel like she is in love with me and wants to be in this relationship. So here we are with the couple, one year after the revelation of the husband's infidelity. And while they would love to be able to reconcile and continue as a family, the wound, the violation of trust, the hurt, the disillusionment that she experiences feels insurmountable. I honestly don't even know if I want to have this relationship anymore. I don't know if I love him, if I can ever love him after this. How do you work on your feelings? <laughs> How do you love somebody again? So the idea with that is that there is something in those two minutes that make you, that sits with you, that says, this is me, or I, I want to know the answer to these questions, um, and makes these people your people. So when we all started uh, in radio, I know this was true for me, but I, I copied a lot of my heroes, right? I copied a lot of my mentors. I remember sitting down with early scripts and trying to read them like the reporters that I love or the hosts that I loved uh, and making a, just a complete fool of myself, right? Some of the, the early recordings of that are, are just amazing in the sort of way I tried to stretch to be someone else. And, and uh, that's all part of the learning process. I think we've all done that in different parts of our life. But what we wanted to leave you today um, with is, is just the idea that when you leave that behind, um, it becomes really, really scary to, to make something that doesn't sound like anything you know, to leave your mentors behind, to take problems you have, and to, to b sort of bravely come up with your own solutions. Um, you will make terrible mistakes, and you'll feel uh, embarrassed by what you do in the same way, but you'll also learn uh, uh, so much. So it becomes scary. It doesn't feel safe, but it becomes so good. And so we wanted to leave you uh, with that bravery and with uh, some insights that we hope will help you tackle those problems, take those risks, and find your own solutions. So thank you very much. That was Colin Campbell and Jesse Baker, senior content makers at Audible, sharing the lessons they learned while producing long-form narrative podcasts. Our podcast is produced by Selena Shannon and the music is composed by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. We've got a bunch more episodes rolling out over the next week and a whole back catalogue of talks and workshops from previous years. Sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at audiocraftfest. 